I've always been an entrepreneur at heart. My name is Elon Jacobson, and deal-making is in my DNA. I'll be here each week talking with entrepreneurs and deal-makers about the crazy obstacles they've faced along their paths, and whether it's nature or nurture driving their success. Expect the unexpected on a deal-maker's DNA. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of A Dealmaker's DNA. Uh, have a fun one uh, today. Joining me is uh, Dali Fromm. Uh, Dali, thank you for joining me. Dali has a very storied history, one that I'm quite fascinated about. You know, starting her career at uh, as a psychologist at the uh, Alberta Hospital of Edmonton, and was reading about what you what you did there, and it was sexual deviants and psychopaths and psychiatric patients and now you're in business and, and moved into law which is perfect transition so then was a, uh, a bay street lawyer for a number of years and uh subsequently left that to start her own uh, consulting firm she is a uh a public speaker an author and uh, an expert in, in in many things so uh Dilly, thank you once again for joining me thank you so much this is this is such a pleasure for me and i i just love some of the things that you have on the website in terms of what this is about. So I'm very keen to contribute and to talk about uh, various things. In terms of the dealmaker side of things, I think that just uh, speaks to my 35 years as a negotiation instructor. So yeah. that's where it fits in nicely uh, that way as well. So thank you. Thank you. I'm, for sure, I'm sure I'm going to learn a, a few things about negotiation, which we'll definitely go into. But but Dali, let's, I always like taking a step back. Let's go before your first job. I mean, how did you grow up? How did you land up being the person that you are? We just give us some Coles notes on on, on what your uh, you know what your uh, story past looked like at the beginning. So what I find really interesting is because I have the privilege in my mid sixties now to look backwards, and I I just so love it. So I started out life in a prairie town, Yorkton, Saskatchewan, and I left at seventeen. So I, I was basically my formative years were spent in a very small town in Saskatchewan. And then I went to university in, at, at Saskatoon. So that was very formative in the sense of, and I've often wondered what it would be like to grow up in a big city like Toronto, where you're one of a large number of people. And, and I think that's good in some respects, but what I loved about being growing up in such a small town are the connections that you make. And also, you know, the friendships go on. They go on uh, till now uh, because of the depth of them. But it's, it's, so those were my formative years. And one of the, the major things in terms of going into psychology initially was being taught in high school psychology. We had a psychology course, and that was very new. That was unusual in those days to have someone who would teach psychology. And uh, so that was that was very good as well for me because I knew from then on where I wanted to go with quite a bit of certainty. In terms of jobs before that, I was a lifeguard. So again, I, I, you know, it's it's sort of a unique job, and I loved it. I loved doing it. I loved being outside in the summertime. The only other job I had, and I think it was only for maybe one winter, I think it was grade 12. I worked in retail, like uh, dress sales. And the one thing that taught me <laughs> was I never wanted to be in retail dress sales. <laughs> and that's sort of, you know worked extra hard at university so that I, I wouldn't be doing that. And again, I'm, I'm not saying there's anything bad about it, for, but for me, it just was a terrible fit. I was terribly bored. I didn't enjoy it. So um, in terms of you mentioned jobs, that that's the one that really sort of 
was a, a key aspect of, of my deciding that, yes, I had to do university. Not wanting to do something you hate is, a, is sometimes a, even more powerful of a, you know, a, a tool to, to drive your, uh, you know, your work ethic, even the thing that you want to get to. You know, running away from, from, from that sometimes is, a, is easier. It is a true motivator, like the inspiration of having, uh, you know, psychology courses and absolutely loving it in high school. And then the other inspiration of, yeah, that's, I, I really could not do that um, my whole life. You know, the, the, this whole idea of small town, you're, you're, you're not the first person I've spoken to on this podcast. There's actually been a huge amount of people that started in small towns. And what is it about, you know, that upbringing that has led people to, you know, some great successes. What do you, what do you think it is? Because I'm trying to figure it out. Is it, is it a differentiated way of thinking about life? Is it, is it the hard work that's instilled? Is it a combination of all these factors? What's, what's your view on that? My initial in- instinct is to say it's because you feel unique. You feel unique when you're in a small setting. You feel, you know, you have interests that are unique to you. I think if you live in a bigger city, um, there's more people that have those interests. And again, there's a plus side to that because then you can group together and pursue those interests. But I think you're, you know, in terms of forming an idea of yourself, when you are from a small setting, you think you're very unique, or at least that was something that I did. The connections are very strong, especially on the prairies. Um, a lot of support. Everyone knows everybody else. So I think those are all things that work towards propelling you into the, the larger world, feeling quite secure. And again, I speak only for myself, but that, that was my feeling of it. And what did your parents do right and wrong to make you believe that you could go to the big city and be, become a psychologist, then become a, you know, a partner at a law firm and you know, next, next, next? You know, a lot of people, to the converse of some really successful people come from small towns, a lot of stay you know, in that kind of smaller mentality, small town, you know, aspirations? So several things. My mother was from Amsterdam. She was a war bride. She lived under Nazi occupation from the age of 12 to 18. She uh, instilled in us, and I remember her saying it many, many times, they can take everything away from you, but they can't take your education. So the idea was, yes, it was always in the cards that I would go to university. Um, So that was part of it. My mother was from Amsterdam, so there was, I knew there was a broader world outside of um, Yorkton, Saskatchewan. Um, my father, of course, had fought in the war. He was stationed in Jamaica, went to Amsterdam. So, you know, they had traveled, not the world exactly, but certainly beyond the confines of Yorkton, Saskatchewan. So those were big drivers in terms of my knowing that there was, um, you know, a world outside of where I was born and raised. Interesting. So you mentioned that you had this psychology course in high school. It, it made it very clear that that's where you wanted to head. You obviously got the appropriate degree. You found yourself working in psychology. You did that for about six years. What changed? If that was your passion, that was that was where you wanted to be. Something must have changed for you to you know embark on this uh, second career of law. It did, and I think part of it was I had huge success as a psychologist. I was publishing um, with psychiatrists there. I was publishing with the head of the department. I was offered the head of the department after five years. Uh, the year before I went into law, it was all too easy. I mean, I loved it. I loved it. And I never 
disliked it. It wasn't like I, I fell out of love with it. I have no regrets about my paths, but you know, if I had my druthers, I probably would have stayed in psychology and the research side of it. But I'm, I'm a person who believes that you follow your bliss and you, you know, you follow that impulse, that eagerness uh, to take you further. And I was in, in terms of, of what I was doing as a psychologist, part of that was as, as a private consultant. So I was an expert in head injury cases as well. And so I saw, you know, the inside of a courtroom, thought it was fascinating and thought that law was the way to go. And uh, so that was the, the, you know, we always think of our careers as sort of straight lines. They really aren't. Life isn't like that. Right. But I do believe in following your bliss. It's a Joseph Campbell saying, and uh, I advocate it for everybody I coach that if you've got an eagerness inside you, that you, it's really important to follow that. And the other thing that was interesting is before I started articling, so we'd moved here to Toronto, before I started articling the summer before, I read an article, an essay by Carl Jung, and he said, you know, to self-actualize. And then looking back at my life, it's been all about self-actualization. It's never been about the money. It's always been about developing myself fully. And he advocated that you spend half your life doing business type activities, and half your life doing what you called human orientated sort of human nature type endeavors in order to be fully rounded. So, and he, he didn't say what order to do them in. He just said, it's important that you do that because then you become a fully rounded individual. And so here I was reading this and, you know, heading into articles. And so it, it sort of just even more confirmed these, these impulses and, and following your bliss that I had used to get where I was. I couldn't agree more with you about this concept of following your bliss. I, and I, and I, I, I say it a different way. I say you can't outwork passion, right? And, mm -hmm. and, and, and if, so, if it's someone else's job and that's my hobby, you're not going to be able to outwork passion. But a lot of people really struggle with the jumping off the cliff to actually do it. And sometimes for good reasons. Like sometimes you're like you're not in a situation where you can. So, so what do you say to those people who, who feel like they can't? Or don't know how. I've always acknowledged my privilege that I've been able to do those things and I completely understand what you're saying. So how do you do it? You do it when you retire. You follow your passion when you retire. You do it. I have a friend, Perry Ehrlich, in, uh, who's from small town Yorkton, who was a lawyer, is a lawyer, still a lawyer, and he does musicals. He has a group that has toured the world. He does that in his off time because his passion is music. It always has been. So he combines it that way. So it's not, you know, I, I hear you completely. Leaping, leaping off the cliff is very scary. It's easier to stay where you are oftentimes, but it's really hard to deny that voice that says, you know, you really want to do something else. So I think there are ways of doing it without jumping off the cliff. There are safe ways to do it. So you land up articling, you move to one of the big Bay Street firms. I'm not going to talk about law. That's not that interesting. What I'm really interested in is your background in psychology. What did you learn about human nature that that is interesting for those that don't have that background? You know, because when you talk about deal making from a lawyer perspective, negotiations are negotiations, deal making is deal making, but the psychology background is, is a unique one. So, so, so what, what, are, what are some of the things that you took from that that uh, has helped you along the way? The most important thing is emotional intelligence and, and social intelligence is, is it's sort of vying for next place. You can be an excellent deal maker, 
but without that component, you're not going to be truly successful. And I'm going to reference Squid Games because it's going on all around it. We're going to date this podcast, but when you look at it, you know, the idea that people get bored with just making money and when you've made enough of it. So it's really important to look at the human side of things. And I would say that what I have learned is that and there's sayings about this and so, such important sayings is that people don't really remember what you say. They remember how they feel about you. They remember how you treated them. And so those are such important things in terms of a business. And I have to say, as an entrepreneur in your own business, self-employed, it, it becomes even more important because and, and I've always coached lawyers on this too and it's in the book advance your legal career in terms of the skills the soft skills that are so important is that you know there used to be when i started there were some people that were the only lawyers who did that kind of work and there was nobody else you had to go to them but now that's not the case to be technically proficient is a given you have to be in law but to be able to add that other component of client service of being there for your client you absolutely need that now because the you know, the field is large and there's a lot of lawyers out there. So absolutely the human nature, the emotional intelligence. In fact, I'm teaching tonight. I'm doing a course um, for Osgood on uh, emotion in negotiation. It was totally ignored, you know, three decades when I started teaching negotiation. And now it's become so important. The U.S. Army is even using my chapter on that. So that's your question about what's important. In a technical field, you still need that human nature understanding to, to make you really succeed. And I think it also makes you more satisfied as a, as a human being as well. So, so Dali, what's your opinion on this? Emotional intelligence, I believe, is, is, is directly correlated to self-awareness because, you know, you have to be self-aware enough to understand how to be emotionally intelligent. I've always believed that that is a born attribute. There are people that, gen that generally, like, like, you cannot teach them what it means to be emotionally intelligent. They are completely not self-aware. I'm not saying it's completely binary, but I think that there are absolutely levels to the game. What's your opinion on that? How much of, of, of the emotional intelligence can be learned versus you are lucky or you're unlucky, just like IQ? You know, you were born with this level of IQ and too bad? Yes. So uh, definitely intelligence is innate. But emotional intelligence is is learned. You Completely, you believe? Yes. Oh, it's the research shows that. And Goleman, who is the expert on emotional intelligence, in my view, Goleman spelled with a G O L E M A N, who's also looked at primer, uh, primal leadership, says it's totally learnable. You can teach your kids. So what what it's about is being aware of your own feelings, and especially with lawyers, because I speak from that side of things, not the psychology, is it's so important in, in terms of being aware of your feelings because as thinkers, which we all tend to be as lawyers, we tend not to be aware of our feelings. And I'll, I'll give you an example of that. And that's a self-awareness piece. And then you have to be aware of other people's. But I've asked large groups, so women, you know, large 100 group of women from a tech company, you know, what are you feeling right now? Do you know what you're feeling? And they look at me like, I've, like what? Why are you even asking that? Of course we do, all the hands go up. I ask a large law, law class, 80 to 100 um, students, um, how many of you know what you're feeling right now? And the first year, nobody put up their hand. They looked around like they thought it was a trick question. The next year, one woman did, and everyone looked at her. Because we have to think, as thinkers, if someone says, what are you feeling? We have to think about it. 
So self-awareness is so key. You can learn it. You start feeling what's going on in your body. You start feeling where you're tense. You start feeling those sorts of things. You, you get names for them. You understand the names. And um, you take the time to be present. And you can work at it. And it's so important to do that. So then as you become more self-aware, you start noticing other people's emotions. And then it becomes um, being able to manage them. And that's a key part of emotional intelligence is being able to manage your emotions as they arise, especially emotions that are destructive. So those are key components in terms of emotional intelligence. So, so there's obvious outliers to this idea of learned, right? Like a psychopath, let's take the extreme, right? Something that you have some experience with. Do you not believe that there is this spectrum? Like you say, it can absolutely be learned. I have a tough time with that because I, I meet people all the time and I'm like, they don't have a clue. Like they're just, they're awkward, they're weird. They don't know they're weird. Where you meet others that are just as eccentric, but are so self-aware of their eccentricities that it's obvious. So I've always viewed it as, yes, you can move up and down the spectrum, but you start somewhere on it. The psychopath being probably the, the most extreme example. Excellent point. Excellent point. Psychopaths uh, have difficulty uh, empathizing because they don't have feelings. You know, it, it, uh, there's a phrase that I love, and, and, and I'm actually writing a mystery novel, so I'm really getting into reading again about psychopaths. They hear the words, but they don't understand the music. So you're absolutely right. They have low arousal. They respond differently using, uh, you know, brain monitors. They, they respond differently to emotional words. So they don't um, respond to gory scenes, you know, gory visuals. They don't respond to words that are very emotive for most people. So you're absolutely right. And is there a spectrum? Yes, we know there is. But for most people, so when I say that it's learned, I'm talking about most people that I speak to when I do presentations, so business people. You pointed out again, very astute of you, because the guru, Bob Hare, who I met, who worked at Abbotsfield, who's the world-renowned expert on psychopaths, wishes that he had done more research with successful psychopaths. And those are people who aren't in prison. And the estimate is one in a hundred in the normal population, or in, in, oh, yeah, sorry, in the normal population. But when you get into executives and even in the profession of law or not, maybe not so much a profession of law, although I think it's elevated there as well, but you get into uh, brokerage firms, the number goes up and it can be as high as five to 10 out of a hundred. So what you're saying to me, not surprising. You meet those people. You know that they are probably not responding in the same way emotionally. Um, on the other side, let me just throw something out, is that those are the people you want to be um, defense pilots or airline pilots because they have low arousal, right? So we're surgeons. So I throw that out. That's in the literature. That's been talked about. But yes, not everyone can learn emotional intelligence. But if you're a person who's not a psychopath and perhaps isn't on the autistic spectrum, and again, I'm, I'm not sure if that's the case, that everyone who is on the spectrum obviously is not emotional intelligent because I've met some people who are on the spectrum and are quite emotionally intelligent. Um, but for psychopaths, absolutely not. But for the average person, yes. So, so you, you mentioned earlier this idea of emotional intelligence being ignored in the process of negotiation. Can you elaborate on that point? And even broaden it, I'm very curious as to your opinion as to what people do wrong in negotiations. 
and what they think they're the, how they think they're being effective, but really they're not. Well, firstly, because a lot of and I, I train lawyers in this because they and I, I put myself in this category because they're not aware of the emotion as it's bubbling up. It becomes very strong before they notice it and they may act on it before they're aware. And you never want that to happen because then not only do you lose control, you're also giving the other side a lot of information. You're showing maybe a reservation point. You're showing that, you know, they're getting to you if they're using competitive strategy. So it's really important to be aware of your feelings in a negotiation so that doesn't happen. Understanding emotions in a negotiation is so important. Um, they're such drivers of our behavior and they're so persuasive. If you're able to understand them, manage your own and be able to use them strategically with the other side, um, you can get information that you wouldn't normally get. You're able to persuade them in ways that you might not normally be able to persuade them. But underlying all this is, I, you know, I'm sounding a bit Machiavellian and it, it's the exact opposite. You understand emotions, you're aware of them, and you manage them so you can be more collaborative. Because competitive negotiation is all about moving psychologically against the other side. And it's one of the, you know, if, if, if I say to people, if, you, if you're feeling like you're getting upset in a negotiation and you don't quite understand why cognitively, you obviously want to take a break because something's going on. So that gives you information about maybe how the other side is dealing with you. And that's really important information to be aware of. So what I stress in learning about emotions is to, you know, sort of up the collaborative side of things, to be aware of when people are not at ease. People agree with you when they're comfortable, when they trust you. That's when they're going to agree. So what you want to do is encourage positive emotions. You want people to be in a good mood when they negotiate with you, not hammering away like stereotypical um, negotiation is, you know, you just, the art of the deal, you know, you just hammer away and you get them to agree. And that doesn't really work. And especially for long-term relationships, that's the kiss of death. So you want to be very collaborative. Um, you want them to trust you and you want to perceive when they're feeling uncomfortable. I want to use this next question as a springboard into one of your passions and we'll stay on the negotiation topic, but do men and women negotiate the same? Should they negotiate the same? Should they negotiate different? Do they, should they use different strategies? And then let's let's just jump into the whole gender issue because I know that's one of the, the areas we spend most of your life in. Well, thank you. Yes, it is my passion. And yes, men and women negotiate differently. So when I started teaching negotiation in 1988 at Osgoode Law School, I looked up all the articles on personality and gender at the time because I was a psychologist, so I was interested in that. In terms of gender, all these studies said no, and they were focused on female and male lawyers, uh, no differences. They, you know, in terms of negotiation, success, results, the same. So I sort of dropped that avenue and looked at personality. And that's when I'm talking about thinkers and lawyers. What was interesting is in 2003, two academics, one of the, them is named Babcock, came out with women not asking. And I looked at all that literature and it's, it's fascinating because we're socialized differently. Women don't ask. We wait to be. They're more agreeable as Jordan Peterson would say. They're more agreeable. Absolutely. And I'm not going to go down the rabbit hole of Jordan Peterson at this point. I knew I'd throw you. (laughs) I do want to come back to him because I want, I want your opinion. What he does is he uses some truths 
And then he has a truth, he says, behind it that he just sort of, and that's not true. But yes, women don't ask. But once they're taught to ask and once they're they're taught to be competitive and no competitive strategy, they're just as good as men. And where we are ace in the hole, so there are gender triggers. And this is what the research showed. Men are very good and competitive. Uh, they ratchet up. They step, step up when it comes to competitive negotiations. Women tend to stumble because we aren't socialized to be competitive. And I'm saying not all women. Most women, because we're, of we're talking generalities, I think it's safe. We're talking generalities. Women with masculine traits, and a lot of female lawyers have no problem with competitive negotiation, especially when it's for a client. But our ace in the hole as women is collaborative negotiation. We negotiate better for others than men do, and studies are showing that um, to quantify it, uh, women will negotiate 16% better in terms of the results than men do. And so when we negotiate for a department. For family, those we we are excellent. We are just perfect. So I'm I'm teaching up at uh, York, and there's a there's a bunch of us. Uh, one is an executive at an aeronautics company. I talked about this gender trigger, and he it it solved a problem for him that he could not understand, and that was this: all of the plant managers were male except for one female. The the managers negotiated their own salary and their teams. The female manager's team had the highest salaries of the whole plant, but her salary was the lowest of all the managers. They could not figure this out. If she was such a great negotiator, why was her salary so low? When I told him about this, we do not negotiate well for ourselves. We negotiate well for others, but not ourselves. It just clicked for him and he said, you've solved a problem that I have thought about for years. So as a father of a daughter, knowing these things, you know, what, how do we do better at ensuring that, you know, inequality does not occur because of, you know, these inherent traits? So there's two sides of that. There's one which is gendered expectations, what everyone expects of you. And then there's what your behavior has been conditioned to be. So the stereotypes, what people expect of you, a woman comes in and negotiates like a barracuda. There's going to be a response to her and a pushback because the stereotype of a woman is to be collaborative and cooperative. And that that pushes against the stereotype. And this is this can be unconscious. This can be totally unconscious. So that's a real problem because as women, you've been trained a certain way to be cooperative and collaborative. You get out there and you know people expect you to be that way. So you've got the training, you've got the expectations. Very complex. So what you do and what I've been doing is sort of showing women the air that we breathe, because a lot of time uh, it's like the air that we breathe, the way we've been conditioned. It's all unconscious now. So we try to fit in. We don't stand out. And the rules, the masculine rules of the workplace, we have never learned. And so it, it, it's very complex. I wrote a whole book on it, 300 and in excess of 300 pages on this because it is complex. What I would say is a short answer in terms of your daughter, because I'm hoping, depending on her age, that things will have shifted. And more and more I'm hearing this from enlightened fathers like yourself that, you know, what do I do and how do I do this? And there's no quick and easy answer, except hopefully society will start recognizing how we, we stereotype and unconscious bias will rise so that we are aware and stop ourselves from acting on it. But as women, what we need to do is become androgynous, just like men need to do. Like really all people should have both masculine and feminine traits. So not just 
stuck in one type of, you know, labeled by society as feminine or masculine. And that would be the short answer is that you try and teach her both masculine and feminine ways. It doesn't matter that she's a girl. You teach her um, how to negotiate competitively and also collaboratively. And there's no difference except it will make her more sophisticated because she will pick up the tools she needs in the situation and not just what she's been trained to do. So she will now look at things contextually. And I would argue that it's the same thing for boys. You want to teach boys uh, feminine approaches. And I say that knowing that it's, it's tough out there in terms of society, but research shows paradoxically, just as I've talked about negotiation, competitive negotiation, which is thought of as negotiation, is actually the worst type of negotiation. It's not effective and it's not sophisticated unless you're only dealing with money and you're never going to see that person again. The, in terms of leadership skills as well, collaborative, participatory, visionary that involves everybody, democratic, are much better than command and control. So as we move forward as a collective, everybody wins when we don't put people in little pink and, and blue boxes. So wide range of skills, wide range of perception, and not just limited to what we're taught in childhood as to how we are to behave based on our biological sex. And what's your opinion about this debate between equality of outcome versus equality of opportunity, right? Because there's this whole thing about how as you allow the equality of opportunity, you know, to be more, uh, you know, perfect, you know, and, and you look at some of the Scandinavian countries where there's perceivably less, you know, glass ceilings, et cetera, you find that you find more women in a particular job and more men in STEM uh, and it doesn't actually create the outcome you were expecting it to create. So, so what's your view on, 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 on that? Yes, and what you're talking about in resource-rich countries, you actually end up having women uh, gravitate. They have a choice. They have options. They gravitate to uh, traditional feminine markets or workplaces. And that's in Scandinavia. And I would say, again, we're separating culture from that because that's not happening in the States, in the communist countries. And again, this is imposed. Uh, China and Russia have equal levels at every, you know, in professions and also in terms of levels of government. And so I think the verdict is still out on that. I know it's been raised, but I think the verdict is still out on that because we don't know what other factors are coming into the mix. Yeah, it's very multivariate. It's multivariate and, and it's not happening in North America. Um, I think as, as women have more opportunities, we're seeing changes in terms of, of organizations. And so I'm, I'm not convinced yet that that is a solid finding is my, is my answer to it. And I'm sorry if, if I'm not addressing it directly, but I, I just don't think it makes sense to just say those countries that are way ahead of us, you know, are showing that in fact that's not happening. So I'm going to be a little selfish and ask you a, a question that I personally have, you know, in an industry like mine, where it is so male dominated. And in my view is that having the most diverse group of people possible leads to better results. I firmly believe that. What can, what can companies and organizations do to better support an, an environment that is more conducive to, uh, you know, gender variability? So this gets right into diversity, inclusion, and equity, creating workplaces that are psychologically safe. So you have a masculine environment that operates on masculine rules that women don't know about. So 
as boys, you're, you're taught that it's important to stand out, that success is everything, that accomplishment is everything. And for girls, it's all about relationships. It's all about groups. And so you put that together and through the through masculine lenses, women look like they don't have confidence. And we've got double standards so that unconsciously, and again, this can go, it's totally, you know, underground. You've got women who perhaps are using old rules and not making their value visible. So that are not being promoted. They're not being seen as valuable because they're not using the same rules. So that's one thing in terms of understanding that these things are going on and understanding the double standards. So when a woman is assertive, she looks aggressive. The assumptions that are buried deep down and we're not even aware of them, such as a woman is out of the office, we automatically assume it's probably related to a family matter like taking a child to the doctor versus a man is out of the office and it's automatically assumed he's working on a client matter. These are very deep and they're baked in. So it's, it's going to take some time, but here are the things you can start doing is being aware that everyone is biased. So in terms of gender bias, women on the IAT, which is the Implicit Association Test, the Harvard Project, um, women actually show a stronger association between home and family and work and men. So men and work, women and family, that's the association. And women have it stronger than men, it's 80% compared to 75. So you can see how we're all sort of biased. And we've got to start dealing with that. But I think the most important thing is self-awareness. And we've talked about that in terms of how important it is. So, so many ways. So self being self-aware as an inclusive leader or an ally or a good guy, there's lots of names for men who are helping women, is to be aware of your own implicit bias. So what assumptions do you have? And, and, and if you're, they're blind spots, you're not aware of them. Others need to call them out to you. And you have to be open to that. And you have to be courageous and you have to be humble that these are things that you're overlooking and if you truly believe and the research shows you really don't have to just believe diversity increases all sorts of things increases the labor force increases diversity of thought no one's looking the same way at a problem um, you know so diversity is very very important increases morale um, increases retention rates I mean the statistics you look at any Harvard Business Review article on this and it's just incredible in terms of what it promotes. So you don't have to believe in it, you just have to know it's true. And by understanding your biases, I think you start seeing where before it looked like it was a level playing field, it's not a level playing field. And so that is that is almost the first step in there. And the next thing I'm gonna say, and I'll stop at that, is in terms of the little things that go on. So it's no longer overt gender bias that is so damaging. The research is showing its subtleties. Um, you're just one of the guys, which, you know, points out that this is really a guy's world. Things like not being promoted, not getting, not, not so much being promoted, because that, that's a bit stronger. But informal feedback is given more to man. Mansplaining, I thought was a joke, but they calculated like it's $2 billion worth of lost time with mansplaining, where men are explaining to women what they already know. So there's these things that are sort of microaggressions, they're called microaggressions, they're really tiny things. And the way you want to counter that, and it's a big step, it's a big step, is changing the intent to show that you wish that person success. They're called microaffirmations. So just showing that person, it can be in very, very small ways, and small ways are the best, that you really want success for this person. So it may be giving them the informal feedback, it may be praising them, 
it may be sponsoring them and talking to others about them and their skills. Uh, it may be calling upon them in a meeting to showcase their expertise. It's, it's those sorts of things. And I'm not just talking about gender here. I'm talking about race as well. Being able to do this for diverse individuals, I think, will go a really long way. And they're very, very small steps. They don't have to be big things at all. Well, I have one last question before I let you go. And it relates to this is I, I agree completely with this, this idea of, of being aware of your biases and, and trying to do the right thing, as I, as, you know, just to make it simplistic. But how do you balance that with people taking it too far? Right. I think that in a lot of pockets of society, this, this virtue signaling, this cancel culture has just gone too far and we've become too fragile, you know, and, and I think that that pushes people who are moderate and center, it pushes them away and it does the exact opposite of what they're trying to accomplish. It creates this bigger divide. And I think that you see that more so in the U.S. than in Canada, but I think you're seeing it in North American culture, period where I think that we have become more divided, if anything, over the last decade than, than less. So, so what's your opinion on, on being mindful of these things, but not taking it too far and not, and not using it as a tool to say, you're not good enough and you know, you're, you're a bad person? Um, because I think that it is being used as a tool of hate as much as a, a tool for lessons. So on the cancel culture, there's a great film, a documentary out now called 15 Minutes of Shame. And I think there are different types of, uh, you know, cult, cancel culture. There is accountability. So I don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater and say, uh, you know, everything's gone too far. There are some things that people need to be accountable for. And frankly, canceling them is the right thing to do for the egregious things that have been done have come to light within the last decade. I, I think it is important. So, you know, that's my view on, on, cancel culture, it's a complicated issue and to discuss it, you know, would, would be a shallow discussion here. But I think it's important to be aware that there are some things that, you know, have come to light and are still coming to light, frankly, that people have not dealt with and need to be dealt with. So, you know, before we say things have gone too far, I think we have to look at some of those things where I am still outraged. Now, you know, as you get older, you get more angry. I'm outraged uh, to see that things went on, for example, the gymnasts in the States. And I, I know you're not speaking of that. You're talking about workplace, but there are still things that I think people need to be canceled. People need to be in jail for because of things they've done. That's the accountability culture. So yes, we're mixing everything up. We're putting some things that are grayer. And I think that's your point is, you know, we've got this sort of sledgehammer that seems to be working for everything, regardless of what the grievance is. The boy who cried wolf, right? It's, it, it lessens the real, the real impactful stories that I agree completely when, when everything is horrible, right? And uh, so I, I, I totally agree. I don't think it's self-serving for the, for the victims at all, you know, when, uh, when, when, when it gets, when it goes too far, basically. But you raise a good point, and it really gets into a sticky area, and, and there's a book called Good Guys, and it's fabulous. I'd recommend it for any uh, white male who wants to help diverse individuals. And, you know, what they talk about is this idea of not mentoring women because you're afraid of, and I don't know if you meant cry wolf from that, but the risk of being falsely accused is very, very minuscule. But men are using it to say, I'm not going to mentor. I'm not going to do the same things with the women that I do with the men, the younger men in the office because of this fear. 
And as a father of a daughter, I think that you would want to be very sensitive to that, that in this way, that you don't want men, and we need men, for equality, we need men, because of that fear uh, that they stop doing it. And the, the good guys treat it so well and, you know, lay it all out. So again, I'd strongly recommend it, but it is a fear that because of accountability, we've now got perhaps in masculine work world places, men sort of stepping back. And what I would say is, I would ask that everyone do the same thing, a level playing field for uh, junior men and women and realize the risk is, is very low uh, of this happening. So that would be my, my, just my trigger in terms of uh, your, your phrase, you know, crying wolf. So, so Delee, thank you so much, first off. That was really interesting. For those that would love to follow along in your journey, see some of the, uh, you know, the, the public speaking or seminars that, that, that you're doing, what's the best way they could follow along with you? Just LinkedIn is, is probably the best. I'm, I'm not really on social media a lot. <laughs> I'm not sure. I, I'm not going to blame it on age. It's just I really have I have trepidation about social media, and I know that that uh, is probably not good. But yeah, so following along is probably LinkedIn is the best. I do a lot of work privately, so there's not a lot of public things other than the university work. Uh, so it really is contacting me and uh, asking me to do keynotes or seminars or whatever, you know, coaching, whatever service that uh, you need. I do have a website, so that would be one place to uh, see what my services are. But thank you for asking that. That's, uh, that's great. As an entrepreneur, that's uh, a lovely question to have. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, that was really informative. And uh, thank you uh, once again for joining me. And uh, until next time. So thanks. For sure. Thank you so much. That's it for this week. If you enjoyed what you heard, rate us and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time on A Dealmaker's DNA, where you can expect the unexpected.